When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to SFF Yeah, a podcast dedicated to all things science fiction and fantasy. This is episode 22, and we're recording on March 23rd. I'm Sharifa Williams, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. And today, we're going to be talking about steampunk. The theme is steampunk, and... To be quite honest, I have not read a lot of steampunk, so I was glad to have an opportunity to do so. (laughs) I don't know about you, Jen. I am in no way an expert, but I I would say I've read a smattering. Yeah, like a smattering. You know what's funny? I've done more steampunk cosplay (laughs) than I have read (laughs) steampunk. Like I used to do way back – I can't remember – When it was like at its height in terms of, you know, you'd see people dressed up in steampunk stuff all the time Mm -hmm. and eBay was always running out of goggles, (laughs) vintage goggles. It was around that time. I was doing so much. I did steampunk witch one time. I think I have a photo of that. It was so, I remember when it was really popular. This is my new favorite thing that I know about you. (laughs) (laughs) I used to do a lot of cosplay. Was it nerd? Was it for cons or like where did you cosplay? This one was for there used to be like this Halloween. It was for Halloween, but there was this big dress up masquerade ball event in Los Angeles, and it was called a Hex Hollywood. Nice. And so it was at this giant venue, and I was like, oh, I want to show up dressed to impress. And I guess back then, dressed to impress was being a steampunk witch. I mean, so. why not? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's pretty cool. I think so. Yes. Whatever. Yeah. But so maybe we'll get into it, but um, maybe our first sponsor. Indeed. I am so excited for this sponsor, too. It is Hot and Badgered by Shelley Laurenston, who I <laughs> love. I recently reviewed her Call of Crows trilogy in the Swords and Spaceships newsletter because they're just so much fun. And this is the first of a brand new paranormal romance series about three outrageously snarky sisters. Um, Shelley Laurenston is returning to the shapeshifter genre and the animal that her re- have been clamoring for since the release of her fan favorite novel Bite Me and that animal is the fearless honey badger (laughs) honey badger shape shifters I own Bite Me I do it's good it is really fun (laughs) um So uh, Shelley is particularly known for her snarky humor and wit, which gives her a unique voice in romance. Um, and Bite Me was a New York Times, uh, USA Today, and Amazon bestseller. And so she is now returning to the Honey Badgers. Um, this trio of Honey Badgers sisters are fierce, flawless, and fearless. They don't let anyone get in their way and don't take any nonsense. These are strong modern women who readers will cheer for and see themselves in. And that is one of my favorite things 
things about Shelley Lawrence's romances is they are romance. You're going to get a happy ending. You're going to get some steamy scenes. But also all of her characters have friends who are super important to their lives and support each other. And sometimes they fight and sometimes they have crazy family shenanigans. Um, Bite Me opens with a brawl at a funeral, for example. <laughs> um, but but Shelley Lawrence's characters are always like really ride or die for each other when it comes down to it. And it's one of my favorite things about her books. So yeah, definitely snarky, definitely funny, really entertaining, and just so well done. So thank you very much to Hot and Badgered by Shelley Lawrenston for sponsoring the show. I encourage you all to check out her books personally and also because it is a sponsor. It's a good combo, that one right there. So two things. I love stories about sisters. And I saw that title and was like, I have to get this. I haven't looked at the (laughs) description, but I know I need this book in my life. (laughs) She's so funny. Like, it's just really... She's so quippy and quick with the the dialogue. And her dialogue is always very, like, conversational. Like, she, I love like that. Yeah, it's just so fun. They're so fun. Okay, I'm going to get that book. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's jump right into news. And <laughs> I think I want to get this J.K. Rowling story out of the way. Because okay. <laughs> I feel like we talk about... You know, weird science fiction and fantasy. Of course, we talk about Harry Potter a lot. And it just seems like there's so much weird or unpleasant news coming out of the wizarding world lately. Mm. Other than that incredible mobile game that I have to get when it comes out. But so this story is about um, Pottermore and the editorial staff, both senior and junior editorial staff, were sacked this week. Um, And so the future of the website is in question just because that really changes the space because what happened was Pottermore, back when I first got on it, it was a lot of, you know, you did the quizzes. Actually, when I got on it, there was not that much to see there, Uh, but there were some interactive elements and that sort of thing and some surprise content that you know, brought something new to the world of Harry Potter. And then it sort of transitioned into a more editorial space where there was original um, content being created. And this editorial staff was a big part of that process of creating these this original content. And so when this happened, when um, the Pottermore editorial staff was sacked, everybody was kind of like, well, what's going to happen to it now? What's going to be the next phase of it? And why did this happen? And some of what has come out of the story from some sources who were unnamed is that they said it was really difficult to have any sort of control over the content that was being created, uh, you know, because of the original source material and also because of the casting of Johnny Depp in Fantastic Beasts because Johnny Depp has had some... He's been surrounded by um, domestic abuse allegations and a lot of people, a lot of fans um, or Potterheads have been really upset about the decision to cast Johnny Depp and, you you know, J.K. Rowling sort of backed it and... So did the director. So it's been like a, it's been a troubled space in the world of, you know, 
Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling. And this is just the latest news from that world that has added to a bit of controversy, I guess. Um, And I don't know what to think about this myself because I have not gone on to Pottermore very much uh, recently. So I didn't really see it transition uh, to this original content space. I don't know. What do you think about this, Jen? I also have spent zero time on Pottermore since like the first day that I created account, logged in, got sorted and like messed around with some potions and then I never went back. (laughs) Um, But I will say that I can see how being editorial staff on that site would be a very difficult job um, for a lot of reasons, including I'm sure you're very limited in what you're allowed to write uh, for lots of, you know, intellectual property and control of, you know, intellectual property property issues and also yeah you can't like comment on Johnny Depp probably which you know if that's what fans are asking about that's a tricky space to be in but also I sort of feel like the internet at large the fandom does such a good job of producing editorial content about Harry Potter that like you kind of don't need Potter more to do that um so yeah like is was there enough of a need even initially for more editorial content yeah I is is sort of the question in my head now authorized content is certainly nice but when there's such good creative fan-based content it's kind of like I don't know I feel very shruggy about this I feel I mean let me take that back I feel terrible for people who lost their jobs like that's never a fun moment and it stinks a lot to just be sort of swept out by layoffs um but I also don't know that you know I don't I don't know that it was gonna work long term for them either considering the Harry Potter fandom's sort of gleeful and wonderful production of content on their own Yeah, and I was reading another article where it sounds like um, some of the senior people at Pottermore have, you know, of their own volition, moved on to other opportunities. Mm. And it sounds like, and this is what I'm hoping for the editorial team that was sacked, that because they worked for Pottermore, they wrote for Pottermore, that they're going to have some really great opportunities that they can then, you know, immediately go into since they've lost their jobs. For sure, for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's my one big hope. Like, I think that's the only thing I really care about with this story. Yes. The staff that sort of got, like, <laughs> unceremoniously sacked. Um, but I agree about the content being created – You know, you can't go a day on the internet without running into some news story or some feature piece about Harry Potter and that world. And there's not only like, there's some really good stuff out there. There's so much content out there that I almost feel like whatever was being created over at Pottermore probably just got lost in the quagmire Mm -hmm. of all the other stories because I have myself not really come across a lot of stuff directly from Pottermore. So, you know, personal experiences, I don't know if they match with everybody else's, but, you know, that's that's what I have seen at least. Mm-hmm. 
All right. What do you want to go to next? I want to talk about how Serena Williams is a huge (laughs) Avatar The Last Airbender fan. That is what I want to talk about. This delights me so much. Um, I don't spend a ton of time, (laughs) scratch that, any time on Twitter (laughs) anymore. Um, And I wasn't following her to begin with because who knew that she was a giant, lovely nerd. Um, But the Mary Sue has a piece that rounds up a bunch of tweets. Um, Serena Williams recently was posting some questions about Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra and then actively discussing, like basically it's like fan theory, like okay, how does this, you know, how does, if the original benders were the sky bisons, badger moles, and dragons, how does that tie in with the lion sea turtle giving people bending power and then <laughs> discussing the answers with uh, the folks who were tweeting her? And it is just, it just filled me with such glee because I too am an Avatar The Last Airbender fan, although I have not seen Legend of Korra yet. Um, and it was so delightful to see somebody who is sort of traditional outside of nerd spaces being so enthusiastic and conversational about like a point of you know fan trivia like it just I I can't I could not be more delighted with this whole with the existence of this exchange (laughs) it's so fantastic like I don't know I love Serena Williams just because of who she is Mm -hmm. But I was completely clueless about her nerdiness. And I think I just love the way she has these transactions, these conversations with fans. Like, first of all, she starts out one of the tweets saying, Avatar Last Airbender fans only, which yes, is like, right. it's a very, <laughs> it's like, I am immediately stating how nerdy I am. Yes. People who aren't into the real fandom need not apply. Right, right. I was just like, I was equally delighted by this and how, you know, I don't know how open she is to having these really nerdy conversations with just, you know, your regular random Twitter users. So I yeah. I almost wish I was enough of a fan to have participated in these conversations. <laughs> Sam, Sam. <laughs> also, like I did not know, and this article points out that she had a guest appearance. Um, she was a prison guard on Avatar: The Last Airbender and a female sage what? on The Legend of Korra. I know, which I did not know. So I feel a rewatch coming on. I feel a real big rewatch coming on, <laughs> and it's all Serena Williams's fault. That's Thank you. fabulous. Thank you, Serena Williams. <laughs> Thank you. Sir. I will also watch. I think I have to watch it. Right. Yeah, I have to see her in this, and just knowing how nerdy she is about it and watching it that way is going to be. I think excellent. <laughs> yeah, it's just wonderful. It just delights my soul. I love it so much. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think that I want to talk about. I don't think for a while we had this story on our list, but I don't think we ever got around to the story about George R. R. Martin and his Night Flyers adaptation um, that's coming out from the Sci Fi Channel. So just to give you a little bit of background, um, Night Flyers is this novella that George R.R. Martin wrote in 1980. So this is a long while back. And now they're making it into a sci-fi television series, sci-fi channel, sorry. 
Um, and it's going to be a 10-episode television series. And they just released the trailer for it. And George R.R. R. Martin actually appears in the trailer. And I was like, wait a second, is he working on this thing because I'm going to be upset <laughs> like he has? I'm not trying, I'm not one of those fans that's like, you know, sending him letters or anything like that. But I do get a little bit agitated when I see his involvement with anything. He's not creatively involved, it turns out, um, because he has an exclusivity contract with HBO that he can't break. So he's not involved. It is his based on his novella. And he shows up in the trailer um, here and there talking about it. And he calls it a haunted house story on a spaceship and psycho in space. That's what he said. Uh, I have not read it myself, but I just realized there's a 1987 Australian film adaptation of the book. Oh. And by the way, it did not get good reviews anywhere. <laughs> But I feel like I have to see it just because, you know, I love a good, whether or not it was intentional, I love a good B-movie, especially when it's like something that was done in 1987 mm -hmm. that was an adaptation of George R. R. Martin's work. He's been writing for a long time. But I just thought it was worth mentioning that it, so this novella follows a group of eight scientists on a spaceship called the Night Flyer, and they're hoping to discover uh, whether they can make contact with uh, alien life but then things go really bad and really scary events start to occur and it does sound like it's like a space horror uh, tv show or novella and the question of who's captaining the ship comes up and you know whatever they discover results in really bad times for everybody so that's what it's about the trailer was already too scary for me. I will not really? be watching this. <laughs> I have a very low horror tolerance, as we all know. And, uh, you know, nope, yeah. nope, nope, nope. I'm noping right out of that. I also, I've read some of his other fiction, um, but I haven't read this one. And now I know not to read it. <laughs> so thanks, yeah. sci-fi. Like, I, I do appreciate knowing when something is not for me. And this one is not for me. But if you like sci-fi, horror you might want to watch the trailer it might make you excited i don't know i think it if you like a lot of like i like horror a lot um and even though space terrifies me and certain <laughs> types of aliens really scare me like i don't know if there's aliens necessarily in this so don't like go into this thinking i said that they're aliens but anything that involves alien life i'm going to suspect that some scary really tall those are the ones that scare me the really tall aliens i don't know what it is i, I yeah weirdly the alien franchise is my one exception to this rule i love i was going to ask i love the alien <laughs> franchise cuz that is scary i know but somehow it works for me I could yeah. not explain to you why that's okay when other things are not. But man, I have I own them all. I own them. I went to see Prometheus in the theater, although I have yeah. not seen the newest one yet to my dismay. I did. I it was a, I I well, we'll talk about that some other time. But I really yeah. I do want to go see it or and or rent it um as soon as I can. I just lost track of it when it came out in the theater. Okay. Well, that's Nightflyer. If you are into super scary, I mean, we predict that it's going to be super scary science fiction in space uh, series. Then that's something new from the Sci-Fi Channel you can check out. Hooray. Mm -hmm. 
Do we have time for one more? Because there's one more thing I want to talk about. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I want to talk about how the three-body problem might get adapted by Amazon. Because this might be the thing that breaks me. <laughs> I, I mean, as I have said before, I'm not a fan of Amazon. I spent too much time as an independent bookseller. So I have not seen any of the sci-fi adaptations, which they just keep doing more of. They are really acquiring properties like crazy. Um, we also have a note on here about the Lord of the Rings series that they're working on, which is maybe going to cost like $500 million. Um, well, if you thought that was a lot of money, supposedly they are earmarking $1 billion for turning the three-body problem into a blockbuster sci-fi television series. Um, it was reported in the Financial Times, and they are looking at producing three seasons of episodes, which would make sense because there are three books if you're going for one book per season. Although I do think that the three-body problem has enough stuff in it that you could even turn one book into three seasons if you really paste it out. Um, but man, like, could could anybody else please acquire this? Like, somebody else, anyone else, really? <laughs> Don't let it go to Amazon, because I'm going to need to watch this. I just... The Three-Body Problem is such an amazing science fiction series, and... I I don't know what to do about this. I just don't know. I mean, the sad thing is that I feel like some of these um, enterprises, just because they're so expensive, like mm. we were, you were just talking about like the Lord of the Rings, um, how Amazon acquired that. And that was like so much of that money is just acquiring the rights yes. to it. Yeah. And I feel like there are very few uh entities that can afford that sort of thing so it's unfortunate that amazon does seem to be you know taking over all of the favorite science fiction and fantasy properties and just you know churning them out but it's funny there's a lot of like maybes with this yes. article so it's hard to know whether this is going to happen it's I just, it's just hard for me to even wrap my mind around $1 billion. Yeah. But it is like a three, it's three seasons. So I guess I should like keep that in mind. That's part of the perspective. It's not just like one season. But I remember, I think I read another article. I can't remember if it was in this one that was saying like, it may be bigger than Game. Oh no, yeah. yeah, I think it's right here. It may be bigger than Game of Thrones or surpass the success enjoyed by the Game of Thrones. So I mean, like- wild speculation. But it is. It could though. I mean, it could. It has a lot of potential. Um, yeah. Because there's so many great elements. You know, you've got the video game element. You've got the historical element. Like you've got the present day element. It's just. It's just so rich that series in in plot and characters and um and detail. So ugh, I just I don't I don't but I don't want to watch something from Amazon. <laughs> what will I do? What will I do? I well, you maybe I mean <laughs> I'm like trying to instill you with like completely foundless hope, but <laughs> maybe somebody will swoop in with that one million dollars and say, you know what, we're outbidding you on this one. So 
peace out Amazon. I can but... only hope. Maybe Serena Williams wants to adapt. Do you think she yeah. has a billion dollars? <laughs> Tennis money, you know? It's not bad, right? And, Cameos. And just, yeah. You pay a lot for that. She's got a she's got a rich husband, I think. Like maybe to their, you know, net worth combined perhaps. <laughs> We implore you, Serena Williams, to <laughs> save please. me from Amazon. <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, here's hoping. Um, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for, for you, but thanks. Okay, so before we get into our actual picks, I'm, I just want to give a shout out to a really cool shirt we're selling on at the Book Riot store. And it's the all genres shirt, and it looks very much like the badass broads of sci-fi shirt, which I love personally. It's so comfortable and wonderful. So on the, it's the all genres shirt, and it's it has sci-fi and fantasy and romance and mystery listed, and it's that style. I'm sure that there's a name for this style that you see all around, where it's like that specific font and it's listed. But it's really cool. You can represent whatever genre you love, and you know anybody who wants to to put their nose up at you for their love of literary fiction and their dismissal of genres, you can just show up in your shirt and be like, what? <laughs> so right now the uh, the shirts are on pre-order. The pre-order ends next Friday. So that's March 30th. So you definitely want this shirt. I want this shirt. Um, I already ordered mine. You did? <laughs> I did. I did. I ordered it. <laughs> That is excellent. I'm always late to this just because I try to talk myself out of spending more money. Mm -hmm. Like, I have spent a lot of money at the Book Riot store, but, you know, (laughs) I've got to represent. That's all I'm saying. Do you know the worst part about this is that the uh, Badass Broads and this one were both my ideas, so I'm literally pricing myself out. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I am ruining my own budget. This is that is amazing though. You but you can come up with things and you can just be like, you know what? I just want this thing to be in the world, and you just made it happen. That's- Rebecca is like the fairy godmother of t-shirts. Like, wish for a shirt, and sometimes Rebecca will deliver it unto you. That is incredible. Mm-hmm. I need to start thinking of things and being you like, do. Hey, then Rebecca. Can- hey, <laughs> you can break my budget too. <laughs> I'll try. It is like one of my goals in life. (laughs) So if you want your All the Genres shirt and you want to boost Jen and her (laughs) incredible ideas and keep her coming up with them, you can go to store.bookriot.com and you'll see it right away. It's right at the top. But remember to pre-order before uh, March 30th. All right. All right. Let's do this. Steampunk. I feel like we should start out with a definition of steampunk for our readers who are not familiar. So I went to trusty Wikipedia because that's that's where I go. (laughs) Um, And according to Wikipedia, steampunk is a subgenre of science fiction or science fantasy that incorporates technology and aesthetic designs inspired by 19th century industrial steam-powered machinery. So hence the steam part of steampunk. Um, And they are often set in alternative history versions of like you know there's there's we talked about some weird western steampunk uh, a yeah. few shows back a lot of them take place during the victorian era um 
So that is sort of the the basic definition of steampunk that we are working from. Now, it's interesting to me because both of my picks are a little bit on the outer boundaries of steampunk, which is not to say that there isn't amazing like legit steampunk uh, that is, you know, known as steampunk. Like Gail Carriger, I think, is a great example of sort of dyed-in-the-wool steampunk. But I didn't pick her. I picked other things. (laughs) Um, So I am going to start us off by talking about Girl Genius, which is a comic, a steampunk comic, and it was my first exposure to steampunk. I picked it because it was the very first time I was ever introduced to steampunk and I cannot actually remember how I found it. I remember that I was working this kind of miserable job in the marketing department of a hotel oh. and they they weren't giving me enough to do. And I had sort of a computer in the corner so nobody could see my screen. So I sat there and read my way through Girl Genius. Um, and this was probably 2000 and when did I have that job? It was like 2008 probably so so it's been a minute um but yeah it's it was my very first exposure to this and the creators of girl genius have said that like oh it's kind of steampunk but it's more properly gas lamp fantasy which i think is like okay fine like sure but they're (laughs) all they're all steampunk and gas lamp to me are very closely related so i feel like it counts um and it is often referred to as being part of the steampunk so what it is is it is about as you might guess a girl genius um it takes place in an alternate history very european victorian era style setting um and the lead character's name is agatha and she is a very absent-minded uh student at the transylvania poly Gnostic University Um, and (laughs) she is really dedicated to her engineering studies but she's never able to get anything to work so she's just kind of destined for like a no career as a lab assistant like a klutzy lab assistant but then the university is overthrown and a strange machine is walking the streets and Agatha turns out to be a mad scientist with powers that are completely unexpected. Um, I won't reveal why she has those powers, but there is a great, big, huge sort of sweeping plot to this. Um, there are like, it, there's long lost descendants and like villainesses that turned good and then there's mad science and then there's magic and there's politics and all kinds of crazy shenanigans. Um, And I was just, it like made that job bearable until I could find a different one. (laughs) I like that is, this comic was how I got through that job. Um, It started in 2002 or perhaps a little earlier. It was first collected in a published, it was first published in a collection rather um, in 2002. And there are collected editions, but you can also go online. Uh, to girlgenius.com and read it for yourself. Um, although maybe, ooh, that's not the right URL. I'll get the right URL in the show notes. Um, but uh, yeah, but maybe don't do it at work like I did because I don't want anybody <laughs> to get fired following my example. Excuse me, it's girlgeniusonline.com. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's really fun. It's fun art. It's fun weird tech. It's fun reimaginings of like Europe. There's Zeppelins and 
things. Like it's got all the stuff. It's got all. It, there's laser guns. There's all of the things in it. So that is uh, the Girl Genius comic. The first collection is called Agatha Heterodyne and the Beetleberg Clank, and that's by <laughs> Phil Foglio and Kaya Foglio. That sounds so utterly delightful. I might have to pick that one up. And also, we are kind of on the same page with our mm. fantasy picks. Oh, um, yes. Uh, yeah. So I also chose a comic. And mine is also like kind of a mix. Like it is steampunk, but it's a bit mixed. So uh, it's a comic I've been meaning to get around to reading. So I basically use this theme to bring it to the top of my TBR. <laughs> and it's monstrous. By Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda, um, who I love, both of them. And Liu has written for a number of Marvel comics, and Takeda has illustrated a number of Marvel projects as well. And the two women joined forces to create this really incredible creator-owned Hugo Award-winning comic series. Uh, and the world of Monstrous is sort of Asia-inspired deco-punk and steampunk, and it's so, so gorgeous. And I believe the time frame is supposed to be, or at least inspired by the, the early 1900s. And there were just panels in this comic that completely took my breath away. I kind of suspected that it was going to be a beautiful comic because I had seen some panels from it. Um, it's been covered a lot everywhere since it came out. And I read this on my phone, so that's saying a lot because <laughs> I read a lot of stuff on my phone whether or not it's the most efficient format just because it's easy. Uh, but I read it on my phone and I was like, oh my goodness, like zooming in on some of these panels. They are so incredible. And I'm pretty sure I'll eventually convince myself that I need a physical copy just so I can leaf through the pages and take in all the beauty and the gore. There's a lot of gore. And a lot of cursing. This is definitely not an all-ages comic, so just letting you know that. And the story follows Micah, who's a supremely conflicted, determined, and very dangerous young one-armed woman. And she's on this supremely risky, self-assigned mission to discover who she is and what happened to her mother and what happened to her because her memories are kind of shifty. She doesn't know. Um, so what happened in her and her mother's past is of great importance to a lot of powerful and mostly merciless people on either side of this war between these beings called the Arcanics and the Cumea, and hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but the Arcanics are beings who look human but are imbued with this substance that feeds the Cumea who are in order of sorceresses. But there's something about Micah they don't know. She has this strange and really damaging connection with an old god. And their connection might lead to their unmaking and the unmaking of the entire world. So very high stakes, high risk adventures and lifestyle. But, you know, like I said, this comic is really lush. It's not as directly steampunk as a book like my next book is going to be. Uh, but I read the first volume, and this isn't necessarily a world that relies on steam or sticks to the steampunk aesthetic exclusively, but it does have the subgenres like, you know, the same thing, the Zeppelins, and you see some of that retro tech you get 
in steampunk and it is described as steampunk um but it's also described as a lot of other things so this is definitely more fantasy that gets its its aesthetics from more than one place and i kind of like that Mm -hmm. i yeah i enjoy seeing someone um, like I can imagine seeing someone want wanting like straight up steampunk, just give me the gears and the steam and do it like it's been done. But I like that Monstrous created this really fresh, compelling look by going outside of the box and exploring a lot of other aesthetics and a lot of, you know, different imaginings. And I also thought it was super cool that the vast majority of the characters in this comic, both evil and good, are not only women, but women of color. And Liu actually said Monstrous was her response to and a product of her frustration with being bombarded by stories she's told she should be grateful for. Um, And we all know what comics in the fantasy genre have looked like historically. So this was really refreshing, this comic. And it's set in a matriarchal society, no less. But we talk about flawed women all the time. And, I mean, yikes, some of these characters were pure (laughs) evil. Pure evil. So if you're squeamish about violence, maybe just read the Wikipedia for this or have a friend tell you the story and gaze upon the cover art because the knives are literally out on, like, every page and nobody, innocents or children or whatever, nobody is safe in the story. And there's a lot of interesting, strong world building involved and some fantastic characters. I'm a sucker for any story that includes a talking cat. So I clapped my hands when the cat Ren showed up. And also in Micah's party is a fox-tailed kid. And they end up doing that perilous journey thing together, which is a fantasy trope I'm personally fond of. And right now there are two volumes out, uh, collecting issues 1 through 12. And if you prefer issues, you can get up to issue 15. That one just publishes on March, uh, or published on March 21st. And the third volume, which collects issues 13 through 18, is due out in August. So at least you'll have something to look forward to in the summer if you read the first (laughs) two volumes this spring. Like, I think I'm going to hold off on reading the second volume until I'm a little closer to summer. But yeah, so again... Um, I've been talking about Monstrous, which is written by Marjorie Liu and drawn by Sana Takeda. It is gorgeous. It's so beautiful. I I, love it. I got the first uh, issue when it was at my comic shop before I moved, and then I lost track of it. But I do need to pick it back up because it was was gorgeous. So Um, good. Yeah. Okay, before I do my sci-fi pick, I want to give an honorable mention to an anthology. It's called The Sea is Ours, Tales from Steampunk Southeast Asia, edited by Jamie Goh and Joyce Chung. And um, I... I could have talked about this, but there was another one I really wanted to talk about. Um, But I just want to say that this is a great example of marginalized communities reclaiming narrative traditions. Um, There are incredible stories in this anthology and it is straight up steampunk. Like it's in the title or rather (laughs) the subtitle in this case. Um, But there's so much good stuff in here and some of it is more fantastical and some of it is more science fictional, but it is all full of the most amazing steampunk aesthetic. It just also takes place in, you know, the Philippines, um, 
or, you know, like just it's Southeast Asia. So you get all of these different perspectives and mythologies and characters interacting with the steampunk aesthetic and framework. And it is fantastic it's so good so that's the sea is ours tales from steampunk southeast asia and yeah the the problem that steampunk has had along with the rest of science fiction and fantasy slash all literature is that it is very white and steampunk in particular tends to be very colonialist because we're talking about the victorian era here um and like not super great for anybody who wasn't white uh so so my sci-fi pick is Everfair by Nisi Shal, which she basically dared herself to write um, uh, at, at, like at, during a panel, like a like a sci-fi fantasy con panel. She ended up, you know, saying, you know what, I'm going to write a diverse steampunk. And in the process, we're going to talk about the Belgian Congo. So, so she did. She wrote an incredible alternate history steampunk novel set in the Belgian Congo um, that thinks about what it might have, what the colonization of the Congo might have been like if the native populations had had steam technology. Um, And the way she does this is by weaving together a bunch of different sort of groups who are all interacting in the Congo. So there are these socialists from Great Britain who want to start a utopian society, and they've hooked up with um, African-American missionaries from America to purchase land, and they're going to start their own sort of utopian society and call it Everfair. Um, And their goal is to, you know, provide a haven for, you know, political refugees as well as the native populations um, alongside escaped slaves from America or other places where African natives were being mistreated. So they have this beautiful vision, which of course gets horribly turned awry by the Belgian invasion and, you know, colonization of the Congo. So there are battles galore. There's all kinds of like airship battles and on the ground battles. And there is, you know, like steam powered limbs and um, because, because also amputees are a thing that happens. Um, And And this book is so epic. It also, in addition to having a ton of different characters who are jumping from character to character and seeing all these different points of view, she also covers a huge amount of time. So it goes forward um, from its starting point pretty far into the future. I can't remember the exact number of years it takes place over, but it might be like a decade. And it is so well handled. My only problem with this book is that there were characters I wanted to spend more time with because I loved them so much. Like she gave us so many great characters to root for. And I was just like, but wait, I need more. <laughs> like, go back to that one. I need more of that storyline. But but you know, then the new storylines were so good, it was hard to hard to find fault with that. And oh sorry, go ahead. It sounded like you wanted to chime in. No, I was going to say that's always really tricky when you have those I've I've run across those before. Yeah. I mean it's it's a it's a bold move to to do that many points of view um and the, that many diverse points of view. You know, she's got Africans, Europeans, East Asians, African Americans, like it she's got gay characters and straight characters and lesbian characters and you know just a ton of of different viewpoints. But I I thought it was incredibly ambitious and really well done and it also will have you 
you rethinking sort of what is possible within the steampunk aesthetic. Like you can have a book that does have a ton of plot and a lot of great airship battles and all of that good stuff, but also treats with a really serious topic. And I thought she did it just really beautifully. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, I read it a couple of years ago and it remains a book that I cannot shut up about. So that's Everfair by Nisi Shaw. Excellent. I still have that on my list. Uh, it's so mm-hmm. hard. It's, I mean, it's yeah. long. And, you know, it is it is not light, obviously, because the subject matter is not light. No. But I think it's so worth the read if you can if you can carve out the time for it. I eventually will. I'm yeah. sure. Okay. So my science fiction pick is straight up just, you know, a rollicking adventure story. It's Bone Shaker by Sherry Priest. And Bone Shaker is a Hugo and Nebula nominated first book in the Clockwork Century series, which has a total of six books right now. I couldn't tell if the sixth is the last in the series, but that one, that last one was published in 2015. Um, and Bone Shaker was published in 2009, which somehow seems like a million years ago. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I can't believe I'm reading this now. Um, but the story is set in an alternate history Seattle during the early days of the American Civil War. So around 1860, I think. And the war is happening in the background. It's mentioned, but it's not a huge part of the story. And the story follows Briar Wilkes and her teenage son Zeke as they separately go into this zone of destruction caused by Briar's husband. And the story is told from their two perspectives as they individually undergo struggles. So what happened was Leviticus <laughs> Blue, <laughs> who's an inventor or was an inventor, created this machine called the Bone Shaker to mine rumored Klondike gold. Gold, But something went terribly wrong in a very suspicious way and the machine just wreaked havoc, tapping into the ground and releasing this really noxious, poisonous yellow gas. And the region somewhat recovered by closing off the zone with a wall. Uh, but with Levi gone and presumed dead, Briar and Zeke lead really hard lives. They have this, you know, some other dude's reputation hanging over their heads they have no money they barely eat and zeke is street smart and he hangs out with some bad you know some bad kids but briar's holding down this really crappy job to keep a roof over their heads and as a consequence of her relationship with levi their last name comes with its benefits uh thanks to briar's father who is as legendary as her husband is infamous and it also has its curses but because zeke is intent on proving his father wasn't the criminal everyone makes him out to be because his grandfather was this great person Uh, He heads into the zone with only his name for his shield, and when his mother finds him gone, she sets off to rescue him from the zone and from a history she never really talked about with her son. And the book has all the aesthetic ambience steampunks love. It's very steampunk. It's got dirigibles and retro technology and buckles and goggles and steam, everything. And it also has zombies. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> These are the fast zombies, not the ambling kind. So if that freaks you out, beware. I like that. Um, I also like that the main character, Briar, was fierce and, fierce and flawed. I like that this wasn't one of those stories where the bond between mother and teen child is shattered due to their circumstances. 
So it's a good option if you're looking for, for instance, mother-son stories where the parent isn't villainized, even though she has her regrets and she's really hard on herself about, you know, the way she's brought him up and what she did and did not talk about with him uh, before he went off on this adventure, a very dangerous adventure. And the two do have disagreements, but it's not like a villainization of a parent story. And the setting is also really interesting, as you might uh, suspect. I'm not sure how many people are familiar with Seattle's underground, but I took a tour of it way back when I was a teen. Seattle is basically built on top of the ruins of the Great Seattle Fire of 1889, and you can see some of the old structures down in the tunnels. And I have to imagine... Priest was somewhat influenced by that place. She lives in Seattle, so I'm pretty sure. I really thought it was cool and had that steampunk feel, and it gave me those feels when I was reading this story. And we were talking about, you know, the representation of marginalized people in steampunk. And my only caveat about this story is that I know it works to stay true to the time period and so there are of course racial tensions and there's xenophobia and maybe I'm just tired but if I never hear the word Chinamen again or hear Chinese people described as inscrutable I think I'll be fine like I was reading this on audiobook and I just heard it so much I was like oh gosh I'm I'm done I'm done hearing that And, like, the black Native American and Chinese characters are all kind of in the background or serve as low-key helpers. There is a Native American princess who comes in, um, at least in this first book. I've only read the first book, so that's where I'm coming from. But that was my one big hmm moment while reading this story. I, I, I don't know if, like, maybe I'm just tired of it or something. But otherwise, it was a rollicking steampunk horror adventure. And I listened to the audiobook, as he mentioned, and I thought that Will Wheaton fans might want to know that he reads Zeke's chapters. So there's that for any fans out there. Um, And also, even though this is a hefty series, in my opinion, the book can be read as a standalone. So you don't have to go into it feeling like you've got to make a big investment in this, you know, in six books. But if you love it and you want more, it's all there for you. So again, that was Bone Shaker by Sherry Priest. And that was our show. Yes, that was our show. Uh, Thank you all so much for listening. If you have news tips or questions or theme ideas or suggestions, please do drop us a line. You can email us at sffyeah at bookriot.com. You could also, if you were feeling like it, review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other folks to find the show and we do always love to see feedback and ratings. Um, You can find me on social media on Tumblr. It's jenirl.com tumblr.com and that is Jen with two N's and you can find me on Instagram at Williams. that's S-Z-A-I-N-A-B Williams and we'll talk to you next time bye